Good morning, church. I hate to interrupt your conversations, but we are going to move into our time of teaching. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Sam. I am the youth director here at Riverbend. Uh, I also help coordinate Alpha, and I assist Eva with the kids' space upstairs. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I would love to meet you after the gathering. Uh, don't be a stranger. Come up and say hi. But um, would you guys stand with me as we read uh, our scripture for this morning? Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Okay, have a seat. Great to see you guys this morning. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Um, let's begin with a short word of prayer. Father, we just want to say thank you for your nearness. And we just want to present ourselves fully to you as you've brought Jesus into our lives and made it possible for us to encounter your spirit. And we just, we long for more than just the ritual of Sunday gatherings, although the ritual has a lot of rich meaning to us in itself. We ask for your presence to be here and we ask for you to move in power through your word and through your servant. And I just pray you would direct my words, my thoughts, and my steps as I teach to this crew, my family, brothers and sisters. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is part three of our four-part series on the practice of community that we're calling Life Together. And our goal is to overcome the obstacles that we face, specifically us, in Bend, Oregon in the 2020s in experiencing real relationships of devotion and love. And if you've been here, uh, we've been talking about some cultural things that kind of get in the way of our community. In week one, we talked about how Jesus organized his relational life. And we've been using this diagram of an upside down triangle to represent the, his layers of relationship, right? He had uh, relationships to the multitudes, right? These were people that Jesus taught and fed and uh, listened to and delivered and inspired and prayed for and eventually died for. Then there were his, his group of disciples, and his disciples were people that he was deeply invested in. He cried with them. He was patient with them. He knew the intimate details of their story. And if you watch The Chosen, he also had inside jokes with them, which I can't confirm that biblically, but I wouldn't doubt it with Jesus' personality. His apostles were his 12 closest friends. These were his deep ties relationships. They shared every meal together, they worshiped together on the Sabbath, traveled together, and lived in community basically all of the time. And within that group, Jesus had his intimate companions, Peter, James, and John. 
And these were people that Jesus shared his most vulnerable moments with, his highs and his lows. When he was transfigured, he in glory, Peter, Peter, James, and John were there. And when he was weeping and crying out to the Father about going to the cross, they were there. Now, since we are followers of Jesus and our goal is to pattern our life after the lifestyle of Jesus, uh, we want to organize our relational life in a similar way. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. The goal is not to be super rigid or to try to get all of our relationships to fit really neatly into an org chart or something like that. We understand, obviously, relationships are organic and they're constantly changing, made up of people, of course. We're not suggesting that you do like analytics on your relationships, although probably many of you who are fives on the Enneagram would love that idea. What we're suggesting is that you simply pay attention to the reality Jesus had limits, and so do you. So if we're going to cultivate relationships of love, we're going to need to be very intentional about those relationships and creating space for those relationships to flourish. And we think that following the example of Jesus is simply the way to go. Now, this concept of Jesus' life in the Gospels fits very consistently with what we now know about behavioral science, the theory of proxemics from Dr. Edward Hall in the 1960s, also the work of anthropologist Dr. Robin Dunbar, suggests that in order to thrive in our relational uh, life or as relational beings, people need about 75 or so people in their public sphere, 20 to 50 people in their social sphere, eight to 12 people in their personal sphere, and two to four people in their intimate sphere. So very much like the life that Jesus lived. And it's a well-established fact that while people in our society are much more, quote, connected than ever before, we are still the loneliest generation on record. And my unscientific sort of ground-level pastoral perspective is that we're reacting to the loneliness epidemic by going out and amassing for ourselves hundreds, and I mean hundreds, of social weak tie relationships in hopes that they're going to make us feel more known and loved. And it creates this sad perpetuating cycle, I think, where we feel that we are constantly with other people and constantly putting ourselves out there, but still without the genuine, vulnerable, life-giving relationships of love that really satisfy the longings of the human heart. And since we're overloaded on casual relationships, we don't really have the time that's required to cultivate deep bonds. And more than that, our society doesn't really teach us how to do intimate companion-style relationships. Cue all of the statistics that you know very well about divorce and broken relationships between parents and children. Actually, let's not. That sounds super depressing. <laughs> let's avoid that altogether. So what we want here at Riverbend is to just simply follow the way of Jesus and to form an alternative society right in the middle of the loneliness epidemic. And we're, we want to just break the molds and, and we want to create real Jesus-style relationships of love. And we realize that we can't have that with everyone, but everyone can have that with a few people. And last week we began to talk about this, that we, we talked about how most Christians are on board. They're on board and they have the desire to be devoted to one another, but we really don't have the skill of devotion to follow it through. So we have the desire, but not the skill to follow it through. So in every community life cycle, there becomes like this make or break moment. You may remember this if you were here last week. In every community life cycle, there's this make or break where people become disillusioned because we're human. And we have this decision whether we're going to like take offense 
and withdraw or let relationships go. Or we have the choice to take the Jesus way and ultimately be formed into people of love. And we talked so much about this last week, so we don't have time to get into all of that now. But we believe essentially this, that forgiving each other for not being God is lesson one in the skill of devotion. Lesson one in the skill of devotion is forgiving the people around us for not being God. And in spite of all of that, you came back for more, which is very kind of you. Thank you so much for being here. I, I'm excited to share the rest of this vision with you that I think is coming straight from the scriptures. So now that we've sort of forgiven one another for not being God, and that's lesson one of devotion, and we've dispelled the illusion that community is going to become like this idyllic paradise for me where all of my felt needs are met. Now, what are we supposed to do? Now what? Now that we've made that commitment. Well, in short, I think the response is to just keep reading. Keep reading the scriptures and practice the teachings of Jesus. So look, look back with me at Romans chapter 12. This is our sort of uh, text for the series. And it's just... Um, in our view, just tons of really helpful instructions for the community of love, the way of Jesus. And we're just going to be looking at seven verses today. And seven verses sounds pretty manageable, right? Like we should be able to handle seven verses. And we're going to be making it even easier for us because uh, we're just going to be looking at the commands, simply the commands, just what we're told by the Spirit of God that we must do to offer our whole selves to God and his community of believers. So here are the commands. That's a lot. <laughs> Love with sincerity. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never lack zeal. Keep your spiritual passion serving Jesus. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless people who hate you. Do not curse people who hate you. Rejoice with people who are rejoicing. Mourn with people who are mourning. Live in harmony with each other. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So there it is. That's only 20 things that you have to work on this week. And then once you master that, come back and I'll give you the next 20. We're just getting started. Obviously, it's kind of a ridiculous suggestion, right? And, and Paul is not giving us just like a mountain of homework that we must somehow finish by next Sunday. So how are we supposed to read this section of scripture exactly? Well, I think number one, he's giving us a description of the heart of Jesus. This is who Jesus actually is. He hates evil. He loves the good. He shares with those in need. This is what his heart is actually like. Thank God he's like that, right? And number two, these are definitely commands. They are non-optional for the Jesus follower. The Greek grammar is crystal clear on that. For example, I can't just decide. I know Jesus said for me to love my enemy, but I just don't want to do that. So I'm not, that's not how following Jesus as King and Lord actually works. They're commands, not suggestions. That said, each of these 20 commands are all predicated on the first command in the sequence, which is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
In other words, these are character qualities that we're developing over a lifetime by the power of the Holy Spirit as a part of my transformation into the image of Jesus. And the practice of community, what we call Riverbend community, is the training ground for that character development. I wish we had the time to unpack those 20 commands. You're all like, oh, thank God, we don't have time for all 20. Um, I think we'd all get lost in the sheer volume of them. So what I've done is I've done my very best, uh, it's very uh, ordinary human attempt, but I've done my best at distilling this section of scripture into four skills for cultivating intimate companion style relationships. So think of this as like lessons two through five in the skills of devotion. And I've taken a few liberties here uh, basically to emphasize what, in my humble opinion, is particularly needed in our cultural moment where we're living here in Central Oregon. So here they are, four skills for cultivating intimate commandian style relationships. Setting clear expectations, being fully present, listening in love, and being devoted to prayer. So let's explore these one at a time. Number one, uh, set clear expectations. Uh, Whether we're aware of this or not, we bring so many things into our relationships. For example, you might have the expectation of your friend when you're grabbing coffee to be exactly on time. Or the expectation for responding to texts right away. I'm bad at that one. Or maybe you have the expectation of vulnerability and you just get there at a different pace than the other person in the relationship. Now, expectations are not bad. They are normal parts of close relationships. We all have them. But depending on what those expectations are, they can be really difficult to live up to, particularly when it comes to the things that we project onto people to help fix our flaws or to fill the void that's left there by somebody else or the needs that we have inside of us. These are projections that no human being, no matter how incredible they are, can fully meet or satisfy. John Tyson writes this, So much of the pain that comes with maturing in our relationships is about understanding and navigating expectations. Sometimes we have unrealistic expectations and live with an idealism rooted in childhood deficits or cultural distortions. Other times we have selfish expectations that push the relational burden onto others in an unfair way. But mainly we have unspoken expectations. We have an inner world of hopes and desires and longings that we assume the other person knows, but we rarely clarify. And this can lead to frustration, hurt, disappointment, and distance between us and those we love. I think that's so true. In fact, in my experience, unclear and unmet expectations, I think, are a primary way that our enemy, the devil, is trying to sabotage the Christian community in the West. And whether you're on your first lap around the block as in the Christian community, or you've been following Jesus together with a group of people for decades now, I'm sure you at least know a little bit about what we're talking about here. I remember feeling this dynamic really early on in my ministry as a youth pastor in the suburbs of Portland. I was like 20 years old. I had a couple years of Bible college, but basically no leadership training. And I began to notice this trend where most kids in my youth group came from really stable households with married parents. Uh, But also there were some kids in our youth group, a few teenagers, without a father figure or a positive male role role model in their life. And these kids would often find me and, and latch on pretty quickly. 
And there was a reason for that. I was accessible, I would listen, I cared for them. We were talking about Jesus and how to grow close to him and follow him. So I was a very natural person for people to want to connect with. And in large part, it was a really good thing. It was, I'm sure, one of the big reasons why God had me there in the first place, to care for these children, these, these young people. But where it got unhealthy was when they or their single parent would unintentionally put me in the position that was meant for their dad. And I remember feeling these expectations and all of that pressure, and I didn't have the wisdom to navigate it. I found myself thinking things like, you know, I can go to some of the games and I can take them out for ice cream, I can teach them to pray or give them advice about picking a college, but I cannot be like the disciplinarian or teach them to drive or work out their financial aid or fill the emotional deficit that they had from their dad. And this was something that I just was not capable of as a 20-year-old man with a lot of my own immaturities of being able to navigate, especially because we had a youth group of like 75-plus kids. So I want you to think about that. In that scenario, who's to blame? It's not the kid's fault, right? The single mom is just trying to do whatever she can to put positive role models in their kid's life, and I'm just there trying to serve the Lord and, 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 and care for the people who are entrusted to me. So I don't think anyone's really to blame. We just had unclear expectations, and inevitably that leads to disappointment. And I think this plays out in so many, if not all, of our relationships over time. In emotionally healthy leadership, Pete Scazzaro uh, gives us a framework for clarifying these expectations, and I think it's super helpful. So what he says is our problem with our expectations is that they're often unconscious, unrealistic, unspoken, and not agreed upon. So... In order for an expectation in a relationship between husband and wife or community leader and community member or friend with friend or boss with employee or pastor with congregant or vice versa, we need to make sure that our expectations are conscious, realistic, spoken, and agreed upon. And sometimes our expectations are not even conscious. Let me give you just a quick very simple example. When Grace was growing up, my wife Grace, when she was growing up, it was her dad's job to empty the kitchen trash. That's just how it was in their family. That's a good system, worked for them. In my family of origin, whoever noticed that the trash was full first was responsible for emptying the trash. You see where this is going, right? You don't have to be a genius to figure out where this is going. And so when Grace and I got married, neither of us had any thought to this landmine of marital conflict that was awaiting us. And so unbeknownst to me, uh, Grace was getting increasingly more frustrated with me for not emptying the trash. And I thought I was crushing the husband game because I vacuum and I do the dishes and I use the hamper and make the countertop spotless and all that stuff. I feel like I do my part. And then one fateful day, it came out that Andrew's not really helping with the chores around the house. Oh man, this was such a biggie for me. It just like, I felt so unappreciated and Grace felt equally frustrated. She didn't feel like she was getting the help that she needed. And it turns out she just wasn't even aware of this expectation that she had of me. Again, I don't even fault her for that. It's just an untested blind spot until I had the audacity to show up in her life and not take out the trash. And that's essentially what was going on in our relationship. And by the way, this kind of thing happens not just in between husband and wife. It happens in Riverbend communities often. I hear about this a lot. What to do about birthdays or when someone loses their job or expectation around relational conflict. A lot of these expectations that people have are just unconscious. 
So the first step is to just become aware that you actually have an expectation. I guess it is really important to me that my community celebrates my birthday or that my spouse empties the trash or whatever. And if that expectation is not being automatically met, most of the time, unless it's obvious, it's not someone's fault for not being able to read your mind. It may be a completely reasonable expectation, but it has to be conscious. The next step is to determine if your expectation is realistic. I want my community to be on time. I want my community to be consistent. I want my community to check in with me about my, my life struggles. These all seem like very reasonable expectations, and they probably are. We'll know soon enough. But other times, our expectations are not that realistic. We want our community to like all eat pescatarian at the weekly meal, or uh, we feel like the church should match me like on the dating apps with a bunch of people who can ski at my level, and uh, we'll cancel all of our like plans when the snow gets good, and we'll all like spend the weekend up there in at Mount Bachelor, and we'll pray a little bit, but not too much because we don't want to like make the vibes too serious or whatever the case may be. Or in my case, my community should love to consume massive amounts of theological literature on Hebrew poetry and show up ready to discuss the motif of water and its relationship to the Holy Spirit in the scriptures or something else hypothetical like that. <laughs> or here's another very real one. My sister and I are really close, but she lives across the country. And I need someone in my community to fill that deficit that I'm feeling and quickly because the holidays are coming up and what am I going to do? And these are all very real things. And let me be very clear. These might be your very real felt needs. And these felt needs are legitimate. And God cares about those felt needs. And he wants to see those needs fully met and satisfied. And the people in your community will care, or at least they should care, about what your felt needs are. But it may not be realistic of you to ask them to meet all of those expectations. For example, your sister has been in your life since the beginning. The person in your, in your community is great, but she came into your life six months ago. So sharing Thanksgiving with her is going to look and feel very different than it is the first 25 years of your life or whatever. So this is a very important step, noticing whether our expectations are realistic because when you release your community from unrealistic demands and expectations, you can actually realize the actual gift that they really are to you. A youth pastor will never be able to fill the role of a father but they can be an invaluable guide leading you into relationship with the Heavenly Father. Your community may not have the flexibility to just bomb out to Mount Bachelor every time the weather gets good, but they can rejoice with you during a life achievement or mourn with you when you suffer a loss or be there for you every Thursday night for prayer and practicing the way. Your new friend here in Bend, they might not be your biological sister who you shared a lifetime with, but they can bond with you over new experiences and become an actual true companion who loves you deeply. See, realistic expectations are a gift to the people that you're in relationship with, but, but, but mostly they're a gift to you because you can begin to appreciate those people as, as people God is bringing into your life for a specific purpose. So your expectations need to be conscious, they need to be realistic, and they also need to be spoken Maybe you think it's perfectly reasonable for your community to show up on time at 6 p.m. And, and that is reasonable, but maybe people in your community get off work at 5.30 and they have to run home to grab the side dish that they prepared for the weekly meal. Or maybe you think it's perfectly reasonable for everyone to be consistent 
but maybe someone has a rotating schedule or they're on call or they travel for work or they have young kids and there's a new bug going around called hand, foot, and mouth, apparently. I don't even know what that is. It's a new thing. It's going around. So unless it's spoken, we don't know if our expectations are actually reasonable or not. And a great example of this, last week, I mentioned this theory of relational limits from Jesus' life. And afterwards, a guy in our church who's becoming a friend, he came up to me and said, hey, I, I have mixed feelings about what you just said, because on the one hand, I totally agree, we all have relational limits, but on the other hand, I realized that I wanted to be closer to you than you probably have bandwidth for. And then he said this, and I'm starting to feel insecure about that, about my relationship with you, my connection to you, and if we're going to be ever as close as I hoped we would be. This is exactly the kind of clarification that I'm talking about here. He realized that he had an expectation of me that he wasn't really aware of before then. And then he was trying to figure out is, what is a realistic expectation of our friendship for me and him to have. And then he understood that there was a risk of him being potentially hurt by me or me feeling weird pressure or something like that about his expectation. And that's where it normally would have stopped in our culture, with ambiguity and a high probability of hurt feelings. But since he's humble and self-aware and secure enough in his identity, he was able to speak to me about how he was feeling, and I'm so grateful for that. I was able to have the opportunity to say to him, man, like, I really appreciate you as a person. You're becoming a friend. I really love spending time with you. Yeah, I can't spend a bunch of time together all the time. It's just not how my life is set up right now, but let's get together in the next few weeks and let's have that conversation about what we actually can expect from this friendship. I think that kind of clarity in relationship is so freeing in both directions. We're not afraid of stepping on some invisible landmine somewhere. We're not like pulling away or overcommitting ourselves and, and we're learning to operate within our relational limits and cultivate real deep bonds with the people that God has been putting in our lives. Now, of course, I realize that for many of us, these are, these are just conversations that we do not want to have. Like, you would rather just rely on your intuition and your personality that's very kind, and you'll overcommit if necessary. Remember, you're not sold on the idea that you have relational lim limits yet, and it just feels easier than having conversations about where your relationships stand. And trust me, I get that. I don't want to disappoint people. And I don't want to, you know, find out that I had a false assumption about a relationship that I hoped was going to be much closer or something. But the alternative is leaving relationships ambiguous and it leading to hurt feelings. And that is quite honestly what we see a lot of. And I've experienced that in my own relational life. In my case, the people who God has put into my life as intimate companions, I can sometimes neglect those relationships because I'm busy maintaining too many relationships that I know that I can't sustain for the long run. And it hurts everyone. Everyone's feelings get hurt in that kind of a situation. So expectations need to be spoken. Expectations also need to be agreed upon. Yes, I can empty the trash from now on. I got it. Like, I'll handle that. Or yes, I will commit to Thursday night dinner. I'll make it a priority like Sunday worship. I won't make other plans on that night unless I'm traveling for work or whatever. 
Other expectations are, uh, or excuse me, once expectations are agreed upon, in Schizero's paradigm, now they're finally, now they're valid expectations. You can hold me to be accountable to them. You can approach me in love if I'm not following through. See, clarifying your expectations will, I think, transform your relationships, maybe even your life. This will help you understand what you're bringing into community and the, the, the silent sort of unspoken things that you're bringing into that relationship. And then also appreciate the gift of the people in your life, your community, your family, and all of that without being too idealistic will also help you to love them more freely. And trust me, I'm not at all perfect at this. If you're close to me, you know I'm not really historically that good at this, but I am steadily growing in it. And here are a few questions that I've been using lately to help kind of clarify things in my mind. Here's the questions. Are you, right now, are you free or feeling free to love and like your needs are being met in your relationships? Why or why not? Are you feeling pressure or disappointment in a relationship? If so, could a lack of clarity in the expectation be the problem to that? And how can you become more conscious, more realistic, more spoken, and agreed upon in your expectations with that person? So that's skill number one. Skill number two, the next few go much quicker. The skill, uh, the second skill uh, for cultivating true community is being fully present, being fully present. Our world is becoming an increasingly noisy place, and as a consequence, on average, people are in a constant state of partial digital distraction. And there's a growing field of research that measures noise pollution and its effect on our overall health. The World Health Organization, for example, has linked the increase of noise, things like road noise and digital noise from our devices, to things like heart disease, high blood pressure, chronic sleep issues, cognitive decline, and a variety of mental health issues. I'm gonna spare you the details because that's something that you can quite frankly learn from a simple search on your AI chatbot of choice. So I won't bore you with that now. But technology companies just will not quit bombarding your consciousness with new forms of attention-grabbing noise. Gas pumps, refrigerators, doorbells even are now being connected to the internet, sending you messages and demanding your attention. VR technology and even ideas like Neuralink are the next phase of this kind of technology, and we're addicted to it. We're straight up addicted to it in our time. I want it to be noted on the record that I am restraining myself from talking about the attention economy right now. I wanna talk about it, but I'm not. I'm gonna rant about something else, okay. (laughs) Underneath our addiction to noise is a deeper human tendency to distract ourselves to avoid pain or dealing with the depths of our problems. So instead of facing things head on, we prefer to numb out through podcasts or scrolling through the apps or whatever. The 17th century scientist and theologian, uh, Blaise Pascal, wrote this in his theology work, Pensies. He says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in his own room. Here's a question. If that was even remotely true in the 1600s, how much more is that true today? And it's into that numbed out, stressed out, distracted and noisy world that the greatest gift of life with Jesus is the promise of his presence. Yahweh promised to Moses, my presence will go with you into battle. And then later to Joshua, he says, be strong and courageous. I will be with you wherever you go. And of course, you know Jesus' line from the upper room discourse. My father will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, and he is with you, but he will be in you. 
And of course, he said at the end of all of his ministry on earth, at the end of Matthew, he said, Lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Now, I'm sure you're aware entire libraries are filled with what is meant by these words. But for today, I just want us to notice two things. When God is with us, we can actually face our problems. We don't have to avoid them. We don't have to hide from them. We can actually face our problems when we have the presence of God. And we have to be aware of it, of course, but we have God's presence with us. The second thing is this. The power of God is experienced in his presence. There's power in his word. There's power in the truth. There's power in his voice. There's power in his name. But the real power of God is experienced in him simply being with us. And here's what I think that means for us today. Because we are made in the image of God and we are a reflection of him, I think the same thing is true in our relationships with people. The greatest gift that you can give your community is not your opinion. The greatest gift you can give your community and your intimate companions is the gift of your presence. This week, I visited Moses and Lorinda in the hospital because Moses was rushed into kind of a life-saving emergency surgery. And I got to sit with Lorinda for just a few moments, and we talked, and we prayed. And it meant something to them, not because I had any particular meaningful, anything particularly meaningful to say, but just because I was there, and they had, for those moments, my full attention. And by the way, Moses is doing awesome. He's uh, recovering and doing great. So the skill is to put off distraction and to be fully present with the people you're with. We all know people, we've all had conversations with people where they're you know, always looking down at their phone or when you're talking with them, you can tell they're only partially there, half there. And this is something that I struggle with from time to time and if I'm partially distracted, it's usually because I'm thinking about something that happened recently and I'm like maybe replaying a difficult conversation in my mind or how I could have handled a situation differently or I'm thinking about what's coming up in the next few moments or few days. I'm dreading tomorrow's to-do list or planning for the weekend or looking forward to time with friends later. And all of these things are necessary to think about and to process, obviously. This is one of the reasons why we need adequate alone time. That's a sermon series for another time. But the power of the Holy Spirit is not in your past or in your future. The power of the Holy Spirit is right now in the present. And in the same exact way, your gift to your community is when you demonstrate that you are truly here for your people. And when it comes to showing up to your weekly meal and being present with your community, I think it may require some pre-work. It definitely requires some pre-practice for me. Things like going on Do Not Disturb and leaving my phone someplace where I won't be able to get notifications or taking an extra 15 minutes of quiet reflection, or going on a quick prayer walk and practicing breath prayer, or writing out my to-do list. Things like this help me to be present at my weekly meal with my community. And then once you're there, being present means like things like being punctual and making eye contact and asking good questions, all of that stuff. A few weeks ago, Michael, a friend of mine, taught on what we call table theology. And among other things, sharing a meal around a common table is a ritual that connects us together in the present moment. And there's a reason why a lot of strong cultures throughout history, including the cultures of the Bible, considered sharing a meal as a sacred bonding experience. We're all contributing something. We're all sharing. We're all giving thanks to God. We're all smelling the same things, tasting the same things, and we're facing each other in proximity, and we're having conversation. 
So when we talk about the rhythm of a shared weekly meal with your community, it's not like a side thing. It's an essential ritual of true friendship. Other rituals that you can do to practice being present is something simple like saying a prayer while lighting a candle or even just playing a a quick card game. All of these things are rituals or ways that you can demonstrate to each other that you have my full and undivided attention. And I think this is the greatest gift that you could offer your community. And I firmly believe that when we are fully present with each other in Jesus's name, what we're doing is we're curating or cultivating an atmosphere of love. And it's that atmosphere of love that becomes an altar where God's presence is pleased to fall on. And see, some of our issue with experiencing the presence of God is just our inability to be present. And once we're present and we're present with one another, the power of the Holy Spirit just comes in a meaningful way. And this is what we want to cultivate. Being present is a, something that we really need to cultivate in, in our time. And that goes hand in hand with the third skill, which is listening and love. See, the fundamentals of communication are also rapidly changing in the modern era. It used to be that communication was back and forth, back and forth, that kind of exchange. It was you talk, and then I listen, then I talk, and you listen, back and forth and back and forth. But now in the age of social media, everyone's talking, and barely anyone's listening. And I'm saying that hyperbolically, kind of, but there is something to this. Social media is changing the way that we communicate with one another in society. We cannot think about this. This may be affecting you in ways that you're not aware of. Um, We cannot possibly take in everyone's message or keep up on everyone's life update. It's impossible. It's an overwhelming amount of information. So what we have to do then is we have to learn to tune some stuff out. We have to, just to stay sane and so that we can tell a coherent story with our lives. Add to that, we're generally more interested in what we have to say than in what other people have to say to us. It's just a fact of human life. It's one of those things, self-interest is one of those things that isn't cured overnight, right? Many very mature followers of Jesus uh, will interrupt you to get their point across. I do this, and I'm working on it as well. We're also experiencing a phenomenon that I call empathy fatigue where we are exposed to to so much pain and suffering in the world through a global news cycle that's always ticking across the screen of our consciousness. Things like the war in Ukraine, what's happening in Gaza and Israel, the transfer of power in Liberia, not to mention the many tragedies and updates that we have in our domestic news feeds. At a certain point, it's just too much for us to comprehend on a human level, and so we have to detach or disconnect emotionally so that we don't spiral from secondhand trauma. And this is particularly a hard pill to swallow for those of you who are a two on the Enneagram. Your empathy is your superpower, and that's what we love about you. You're beautiful. But even, what, even you have a limit to the amount of human grief that you can be connected to or be a part of the solution because you're not God. You're not him. So what ends up happening is because everyone's talking, because we have information overload, because we're generally self-interested, and because we're experiencing empathy fatigue, we lose our ability to listen to the real people in our real lives who we can really affect change for. And this is becoming a crisis. Why so many of us are talking, sharing about what our needs are, and it doesn't feel like we're being heard. Not surprisingly, the Bible has a beautiful and I think super elegant solution. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. I love that. Recovering the lost art of listening is how you can create space for your friends, your community, your companions to be heard, to 
be connected, to feel loved. David Augsburger, the 20th century pastor, wrote a book called Caring, Caring Enough to Hear and Be Heard, writes this, being heard is so close to being loved that most people cannot tell the difference. I love that. Henry Nouwen also writes, listening is a form of spiritual hospitality by which we invite strangers to become friends, to get to know their inner selves more fully, and even dare to be silent with you. Oh my gosh, I love that guy. Henry Nouwen's my boy. I just like, I'm reading him constantly right now. He's not really, I wish, I wish he was. I had an expectation, a hopeful expectation, but he's, he's dead, sadly. That went morbid quickly. I wasn't trying. Let's recover. Can we rewind 20 seconds? No, I don't think we can. So how do we develop these skills of listening? How do we do it? It's not something that comes naturally for most of us, certainly not me. For me, it starts with a decision to be empathetic. For some of you, that comes very naturally. Me, it does not. And I know deep down that I can't be there for everyone and all of everyone's felt needs. But in my community, I do consider it my responsibility to stay current with what's going on in their lives and to help bear their burdens. And I think I'm a pretty caring person, or at least I hope that's true of me. But I'm also driven, type A, and so that means I can tend to give off the vibe that I've got big, important things to be doing and stuff like that. And so sometimes people feel bad about sharing with me what the pro- about the problems in their life. My wife, on the other hand, gives off the, almost the exact opposite vibe, which is amazing. And um, to her, it's clear when you're interacting with her, there is nothing, no one more important than whoever is right in front of her. She's present, she's a great listener, and that kind of temperament encourages people to open up and share. I've seen it happen, I, I, it's gotta be over a thousand times in our 14 years together, I've seen that happen. And I'm trying my best to learn from my wife's skill set. So we learn, choose to be empathetic. The next thing I do is to just tap in my natural curiosity. I love to ask questions by nature. I want to see the world from other people's perspectives. So when I'm listening, I do a lot of asking questions. Don't underestimate the power of a really good question. Katie Watson, who you know, she comes up here uh, to share announcements every week. She's our executive admin here at Riverbend. She's an incredible teacher in her own right and has launched a... Uh, a nonprofit with a spiritual director friend of hers called How to Hear. And they do workshops um, with people to, uh, to learn the skill of listening to God and listening to others. And I've seen her content and I just think it's fantastic. Sometime in the spring of 2024, we're going to be doing that here. And I know you're going to definitely want uh, to be a part of that. But she gave me her permission to just kind of hack some of the wisdom from her workshop. Um, and so here are just uh, a couple of things. She, she shares four components of listening. She says, we listen with our body, showing with nonverbals that we're fully present. We listen with our minds, disciplining our attention span and intrusive thoughts to be here and present, listening. We listen with our silence, which is, she calls wisdom to know when to speak. We also listen with our feedback, wisdom to know what to speak. And one of the things that I've been learning uh, from Katie over the last several months is just the way that she listens. She's always looking for the emotions and the underlying questions beneath what someone's communicating. She wants to know why you're feeling what you're feeling. And she's really good at mining that out of you and staying present. It's a skill that I hope to develop and be good at one day. And she is showing us how to do it. It's one of the beautiful things about having different skill sets in different parts of the body of Christ. Finally, as we close, here is the final skill for cultivating bonds in your community. Be devoted to prayer. 
Nothing transforms a community more than the practice of prayer. Problem is that we spend a lot of our time sharing and sharing opinions. And then when it's time, finally time to pray, we're often quick, vague, and uninspired. I've been leading, dude, I've been leading prayer meetings for 15 years. Hundreds of prayer meetings I've led over the course of my life. Just this week, I made this mistake. We were meeting, and I split everybody up into two different groups, and I said, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Let's talk about it, and let's pray. And silly me, knowing how this works, I didn't stop with enough time to actually pray. We were sharing for 20 minutes, and we barely prayed. It's just something that, it's kind of a human tendency. We start to talk. And we forget to stop and pray. But notice Jesus, he taught us all over the place how to pray. And um, one of my favorites comes from Luke chapter 11. He gives us parables. He says, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, friend, let me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine is on a journey and he has to come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. He says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. In other words, what he's saying there is that even if a neighbor is unwilling to help, they will help if you're audacious and bold enough, if you're persistent enough. So how much more will the Father who loves you give you freely all things? The very next section Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, this is what we all know very well. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Luke 18, you also have the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus taught us to, quote, show us that we should always pray and never give up. It's a direct quote from Luke 19. We know from the book of Acts that devotion to prayer, not just prayer, but devotion to prayer was the hallmark practice of the first generation church. And this is who we want to become as well. I want to see our communities here at Riverbend being devoted, faithful in prayer, one to another. So here's how we do that. We do that by budgeting time to pray together during your weekly meal. Otherwise, time gets away from you. You end up just saying, oh, Thank you, God, for everybody. Pray that you be with them. Amen. Give yourself adequate time, 20, 30 minutes. Sometimes our community spends much more time than that, just simply praying for one another. Secondly, set reminders in, in your phone for when you're apart. See, some, some aspects of prayer are super mystical and deep and take you years to figure out. Other aspects are just basic intentionality. Set an alarm in your phone. It's time to pray for the people in your community and just do it. You won't forget. If you schedule it, you will remember what to do. Pray from the heart, be specific. In my community right now, seven years in, we've been gathering and praying with this group of people for seven years, and now for seven years, now I'm deeply invested in my prayers for them. It's like praying for my kids. I'm expecting, I'm eager, I'm anticipating God to move with power because week in, week out, we have, we have set aside time to pray for one another, and it's specific. Temptation, again, is to be vague, but don't be vague. Pray like you mean it. Knock, knock, knock. Father, you, we need those loaves. We need those loaves of bread. Pray with persistence. Do intentional follow-up. If you want to be blessing to the people in your community or to anyone really, check back in with them about what you're praying for unprompted. Without them having to tell you the update, ask them, how's it going? It demonstrates to them that you are truly invested in their well-being and you are asking God to move with power on their behalf. And finally, don't stop. Don't stop. Keep on praying. Be that persistent widow 
who always prayed and never gave up. Sometimes it takes years for our prayers to be answered and our job is to keep it up for ourselves, the things that we're asking God for, but also for that people, those people in your intimate companion sphere. And as we close, I just wanna simply model this kind of prayer for you. We do it often around here. And if you've been around, some of this will be very familiar, but what we realize that we need to normalize some of this stuff in order for us to grow comfortable with it. And so these types of gatherings that are larger, it's a little bit harder to model this kind of prayer, but you know what, we're gonna normalize this, we're gonna do it, so just get yourself ready. Please feel free, just enter in at, what level, at whatever level you're comfortable with. Don't let us like twist your arm or make you feel pressure or anything, but we do want to model prayer. Community is the training ground, people. This is where we develop the muscles and the skills of devotion. To give you some hope, Pete Scazzaro, in that great book I referenced earlier, he says this, new skills plus practice plus intentional follow-up equals a transformed community. See, none of these skills are things that will just be an overnight success at, especially for things that we're like culturally conditioned to not even really be able to do. But if you practice them, when you practice them, over time, they will begin to transform not just your life, but the common life that we share together with your community and with the larger church and hopefully the rest of men. And so we wanna lead you, guide you into this kind of community and we're far from perfect. Hopefully you heard that last week and you probably hear me say that much more in the coming weeks. We are a far from perfect community. But the flawed community is the soil where God wants to form you and transform you into his image. And so there might be some of you here are just feeling, you're, you're just feeling lonely. You're like, yeah, I like the idea. I like a lot of the information. It makes sense why that relationship didn't work and why it kind of blew up and was unclear in my expectations. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm feeling lonely and it's not a short road to feeling connected and being truly loved and it's hard. And particularly when many of us are at like an eight out of 10 or a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, the loneliness epidemic in the West is no joke. The statistics on this are just through the roof, and you know this, and many of you feel it. So if you are lonely right now, we just want you to know that we do in fact see you. We can't commit to all be super intimate, close, tight-knit friends. That's just not how it works. We have relational limits, but over time, you can have this with a few people, and we're all going after Jesus together. So will you stand with me and let's pray. God, I just wanna say thank you for my friends. Thank you for my friends who you died for, Jesus, and you love unconditionally, Jesus. And thank you, God, that you showed up into our brokenness and you were fully present. You are fully present to us. This is the greatest gift that you could have offered is you coming near. And so, Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would come. When we pray, we often just kind of move from one moment to the next, and, and a lot of that's fine, particularly in moments where we don't have much time, but we also just get frenetic and we stay sped up. But what we need to do is slow down notice that God is here with us. So if you're comfortable, I just encourage you to take a deep breath in 
and exhale. Inhale one more time. And exhale. Pay attention to how you might be feeling lonely. Paying attention to the fact that you might have some relationships right now that and some of the expectations haven't been clear and that's been hurtful, felt like pressure. Maybe you're just feeling like the weight of individualism and consumerism and digital distraction and all the things that add to us feeling this way. And I want you to just take those things as though they were like little objects you're holding, little burdens that you're holding on to. And I want you to just throw them down at the feet of Jesus. In the language of Colossians 3, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. This is an imaginative, metaphoric kind of practice, but it's so true nonetheless and so real. Turn your eyes to him. Imagine, picture in your mind's eye, how is Jesus coming to you? Notice he's not leaving you. Notice it's the opposite. He's coming close. And now we encourage you to just take a moment and cry out to him. It's very possible I struck a nerve somewhere today talking about real things that might be affecting you deeply right now. Whatever the cry of your heart is, just cry out to God. Notice this. He's the one who said he's always going to be with us. He's the one who said that he will be present in times of trouble. He's the one who said we can cast our burdens upon him because he cares for us. He's the one who said he is near to the brokenhearted. He is the one who said that he will never leave you nor forsake you. These are five of a hundred or more promises in the Bible about God's withness. The boldness, the courage, the risk is to simply call him on it and say, God, you said that this was gonna be how it is. And I need you, I want you, come close to me. I wanna know you. I wanna be near to you. I want my relationship with you, God, to be close. We're just gonna keep on moving uh, through a few more rhythms of worship and prayer. And I encourage you, I know the temptation to start thinking about the next thing and everything else, but I encourage you to be radically present here in the room right now. The atmosphere of love, love, to, love for God, love for one another is the altar where God's presence is pleased to fall on us. So would you just give your full attention to him right now as we sing and worship, as we celebrate the bread and cup, let's do that together as one church. So Tony and the team is gonna lead us and uh, we're gonna come to the tables of communion. But very purposefully here, we're not just jumping to the next thing, we're staying put and we're present to the Lord as he's present to us. We love you, Jesus. 
pray these things in your name. Amen. Tables are open.